Welcome to the Education Gadfly Show. I'm your host, Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute. Today, Lindsay Burke, the director of the Center for Education Policy at the Heritage Foundation, joins us to discuss what a second Trump turn could mean for federal education policy. Then, on the Research Minute, Amber reports on a new study investigating the impacts of licensure and certification on CTE teacher retention. All this on the Education Gadfly Show. This is the Education Gadfly Show. I would say we need professional help. (laughs) (laughs) What does Gadfly say? Hello, this is your host, Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute here at the Education Gadfly Show and online at FordhamInstitute.org. And now please welcome our special guest for this week, Lindsay Burke. Lindsay, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me, Mike. Yeah, Lindsay is the director of the Center for Education Policy at the Heritage Foundation. Also joining us as always, my colleague and co-host, David Griffith. Hey, Mike. Always a pleasure. Yeah. So, Lindsay, I, I have to admit to our audience, we we had a little bit of a mess up in that uh, we, we were not clear to Lindsay that we were doing this by Zoom. And, you know, last time you were on the show, you went to the Fordham office where we had a little podcast studio and you did that again today. Thanks for trying. Yeah, I'm sitting in the, the lovely offices of the Fordham Foundation. So uh, happy to, to be here. Hold down the fort. <laughs> sitting in your kitchen. Turns out somehow our office the door was unlocked. So uh, even with nobody inside, we, we try to be very welcoming. There's some some jalapeno chips in the corner. <laughs> Steal on the way out, you know, some coffee. <laughs> yeah, use the Nespresso for sure. <laughs> Good. And yes, so we'll teach you how to lock the door on the way out if you don't mind. (laughs) Well, Lindsay, we are here because you uh, were the lead author on a chapter in Heritage's Mandate for Leadership volume. Heritage has been doing this since the first famous volume, I think, in in, uh, leading up to the 1980 election of Ronald Reagan. Uh, and as historians know, that uh, that document from Heritage had a huge impact on the governing agenda of President Reagan. Uh, this latest one is part of uh, something I think you're calling Project 2025, which is in case a Republican wins uh, the presidential nomination, uh, that uh, a, a bunch of groups have thought through what that president might do. Surely looks as we're taping this that it's going to be Donald Trump back in as president if it is a Republican. And look, if it's Donald Trump as the nominee, it polls definitely show he's got a decent chance. And so we thought it was worth understanding what he might do on education if he's back and no better person to talk to you than you on that. So let's do that on Ed Reform Update. All right, Lindsay. So First of all, just just tell us what are some of the big proposals that you've got in here in this package when it comes to the U.S. Department of Education? Well, the biggest overarching theme is we want to wind down or at least minimize the size and scope of the department to the greatest extent that we possibly can. And there have been efforts over the years, but I would argue not robust efforts to eliminate the agency, right? I mean, and and I think it's always good to step back. This is not an agency that is as old as time, right? It's only been around since 1980, right? I mean, it was the Department of Education Organization Act in 79 signed into law by Carter and went operational shortly thereafter. But, you know, yeah, that's 40 years on or so, but it hasn't been around forever. And what's the track record been? We would argue it has not been very good, right? We still have all of these 
nagging achievement gaps, overall academic achievements, not where anybody would like it to be, graduation rates aren't where they would, we would like it to be, et cetera, et cetera. And so what if we really gotten out of the department? We would argue not much. But what does it look like to seriously think about winding down the department? And what mandate does, what this chapter does, is it looks at exactly what programs would go, right? The department operates near 100 federal education programs, which we would keep, right? You've got to pass a three-part test. They've got to be appropriate at the federal level. They have to be effective, and they can't be duplicative of other programs. So that handful of programs that pass that test, then if we eliminated the agency, where would we send those remaining programs? And so I think the big theme of the chapter is really doing just that, sending, for instance, student loans to the Treasury Department, um, data collection that NCES conducts over to the Census Bureau, uh, programs for Native American students over to the uh, Bureau of Indian Affairs, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so it really is, I think, a well-articulated path for how you would actually right-size federal intervention in education. Mm-hmm. No, and I, look, and I, and I appreciate uh, that you get into those details because oftentimes you hear politicians talking about getting here to the Department of Education, but that doesn't actually address all the programs, right? That Congress t- keeps authorizing yes. money for every year, right? So you got to think through that. Uh, or else it's just a talking point. Uh, you know, Checker Finn, our own education gadfly, uh, reviewed this chapter, and he he was noticed that there were at least a few times when instead of cutting, uh, there was some additional duties, not necessarily programs, but but duties, uh, things that you did want the federal government to weigh in on. Can you talk about those a little bit? Yeah, and I like the word you used just now, duties, maybe obligations, because at first I thrown for for a loop. I've never been accused of wanting to add programs at the federal level, which is definitely not the case here, um, where there are recommendations for additional federal action would be around strengthening existing civil rights protections for students, um, things like a parental bill of rights that call for additional transparency measures. But nowhere does this suggest adding programs and attendance spending that would go along with it. So Overall, we cut roughly 80 uh, federal programs from the department. And then, like I said before, move those remaining programs over to other more appropriate federal agencies. Um, There are areas where we recommend expanding some existing efforts. The D.C. Opportunity Scholarship Program is one example. That, of course, is the voucher program, the only federally supported school choice program in the country. That's appropriate. D.C. is under the jurisdiction of Congress. We would expand that and turn it into a universal ESA. Um, So that's one example. Um, Others would include uh, spending for students who are a part of a military family, rather than doing that through the existing impact aid uh, stream that's out there, basically providing uh, those students with an ESA as well. The federal government has an obligation to support uh, and defend our, our national security, and so it makes sense to do that. And then likewise with Native American students, there's a unique historical and just contractual obligation with that community whereby the federal government has supported the education of Native American students. But unfortunately, that has been in terribly underperforming Bureau of Indian Affairs schools. And so we would take that existing money and transition that to an ESA or a voucher model for those students. So there are areas where it's appropriate. The federal government is financing some of this uh, spending. We would just shift it over to a model that's student-centered rather than institutional. 
And did I see, was there a, a big tax credit scholarship proposal in there as well? Talk, I, I know that, that that was maybe something that the, the group was interested in, maybe not your personal preference, but tell, tell us about that. So that, that's a good uh, point of clarification. This proposal, our mandate for leadership chapter, uh, yes, I was the lead author on it, but it is a consensus document. We have a lot of fantastic experts who contributed to the mandate chapter, which um, is lengthy and all of mandates lengthy, I think probably north of 700 or 900 pages or so. The original Reagan mandate was over 1,100 pages, if I'm uh, remembering correctly, three quarters of which uh, was adopted. But Yes. So there are um, some groups who have contributed to that, who uh, that is their preferred vehicle for advancing education choice at the federal level, using the tax system to do that. Um, and the thinking behind that is that, you know, it's you're ensuring that you are not putting a program like that at the Department of Ed, right? This is a, a tax credit or would be a tax credit scholarship that's operated through the Treasury Department. So you know, there's a level of security, if you will, there between federal education department meddling and the scholarships themselves. So that's another vehicle that that's in there as well. Okay, great. David, what's on your mind? Well, I guess I'm just curious, um, can you talk to us a little bit about which parts of this would require, you know, congressional action and, and how much of it is, is stuff that yeah. the administration could do by itself? Yeah, so this is the other thing that's, uh, I think, unique about mandate is there is the chapter that is sort of the basis for the entire project. And each issue area has an attendant chapter. So the Department of Ed chapter being the basis for what we ultimately think any conservative president uh, should do moving forward. Whoever, I mean, Mike, you know, you, you mentioned, um, you know, Trump earlier, but really, you know, whoever it ends up being, we would love to see the next conservative administration run with uh, these policy proposals, but there are actions that can be taken on day one, um, executive actions that can be taken that are articulated within that chapter. I think importantly, there are actions that need to be stopped immediately. There are things that need to be rescinded immediately. Um, there's a lot of talk right now around Title IX. There's discussion around how you operationalize the Students for Fair Admissions case that the Supreme Court handed down. Um, things that you could do on day one with regard to student loan debt cancellation, uh, stopping the Biden administration's efforts to continually, quote, forgive student loans. So there are executive branch actions that can be taken on day one. However, the bulk of the chapter certainly has an eye toward what Congress should do. Um, and most of what's listed does require congressional action. So um, you know, any of the program elimination components, uh, a lot of the restructuring and reorganization uh, would have to go through Congress. We recommend that uh, Congress advance a Department of Education Reorganization Act, similar to what initially created the department in order to, to wind it down. Yeah. Now, th thanks for that clarification, Lindsay and David, because that, that is critical. And of course, we know Congress is closely divided right now. Seems likely that that's going to still be the case. Uh, so, yeah, some of this stuff may may not happen uh, at least anytime soon. But but still, it's not a it's not exactly a sh tiny list of things that a new president, Republican president could do, many of which I imagine David would not necessarily be happy with, some of which I would not necessarily be happy with. Right. I mean, it would be a mixed bag. But, uh, you know, but we should I, I, I guess I would say when when a lot of us are talking about Trump and, you know, Lindsay, you may know I'm I'm still a strong never Trump uh, guy. 
um, you know, we worry about all kinds of things. Maybe education is not at the top of the list, but people should pay attention to to sort of what he's saying he would do on policy too, right? And what uh, and and that this document, I think, is something people need to take seriously because whether it's Trump or somehow Nikki Haley pulls it out, uh, you know, a lot of this stuff can happen. David. Well, I was just going to say, Mike, it's incumbent on all of us, Democrats and Republicans, Biden supporters, Trump supporters, et cetera, to uh, try to evaluate policies on the merits, regardless of who is proposing them. So there are, frankly, too many proposals here to discuss in two minutes. But that's my, that's my <laughs> Oh, but you should cents. pick a couple of your favorite. And we can take them. <laughs> I, I will say I don't entirely disagree with the point about student loans. I, I, um, I, I think it's a little bit... Um, rich to consider that a progressive policy. So um, that's probably the, the point I agree with the most. And I, you know, I, um, I actually sh- share up to a point the, the vision of a, of a restrained federal rule. Um, it's one thing to kind of clip the department's wings. It's another thing to, you know, forcibly disassemble it and, and throw the different pieces to different parts of the government. I, I think I do disagree with that. Um, but, it, you know, I, I, I think, you know, it, it's like, any other um, aspect of, of policy or debate, you have to take it one issue at a time. So I don't disagree with everything. Yeah. All right. Well, Lindsay, hey, we really appreciate you coming on the show and also visiting our office. It's lovely. Was happy to be here. <laughs> all right. Great. Well, that's all the time we've got. But again, Lindsay Burke from the Heritage Foundation, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. All right. Now it's time for everyone's favorite Amber's Research Minute. Amber, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Mike. Yeah, so we have this new option now for our podcast going forward where we can offer to our guests. They can either join us by Zoom or they can just go to our office and they can do it from there and we'll just leave the door open for them. <laughs> that you, Surely you have to tell our listeners the back, the backdrop to that little story. <laughs> oh, no, they, they know. They've heard. Oh, they know. Oh, I've already heard. Okay. I gotcha. Yes, yes. The, the problem is, yes, we, we have a small office now in the D.C. area that we do not visit all that often. And uh, as we, like so many other groups, try to figure out uh, the right mix between in-person and virtual work. And clearly we do need to, uh, part of that is learning to lock the door. So I would say we need professional help. Right? <laughs> How long? How long ago were we in the office? I'm just trying to figure out how long it's been unlocked here. Yeah, yeah. No, David and I were there just last week. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Amber. Well, uh, you got something on. I don't know. Something on security would be uh, apt, but alas, it's on CTE. So still useful and good. All right, we've got a. uh, This is a descriptive study, but I liked it. It's um, out from Sean Doherty, who is our, our our buddy on CTE. It was an educational researcher. Uh, he and his colleagues examined exit patterns of CTE teachers and how they differ by the license type and the CTE field. And then he looked at earnings for those who left. So anyway, some, some new wrinkles here on just kind of what we know about CTE teachers. Uh, since growing numbers, we know that you know there's been all kinds of studies on CTE education and its benefits. So the rationale is here, you know, are we holding on to these teachers or not? And maybe, you know, what can we do about it? Uh, They use data from the state longitudinal data system from Tennessee, includes teacher staffing files from 2010 to 2018. They have info on teacher job roles, school assignments, certification, licensure, and all these demographic variables. 
Then they add to it some school-level data from NCES. And then the cool part is they have employment insurance records for teachers working in Tennessee before, during, and after their teaching career. So they've got, again, earnings data and industry of employment. Uh, they focus on high school teachers, over 30,000 of them, of whom over 6,000 were CTE teachers. On average, they found CTE teachers comprised about 18% of all high school teachers. They have slightly less teaching experience, but are about three years older on average than non-CTE teachers, and they're more likely to be male. Uh, so again, the models aren't causal, but they do control for a bunch of stuff. Differences in age and experience at entry, demographics, gender, race, whether they have a bachelor's degree or higher, and year and school fixed effects. They also condition on prior earnings to account for pre-exit differences that might explain post-exit differences. And they control for um, quarters work before and after the exit. And they observe a bunch of teacher, other teacher characteristics. And then they also look into the extent, this is another part of the research questions. Uh, they look into the extent to which teacher turnover in health sciences in particular given that that's a really popular CTE field, might affect course offerings. All right, key findings. CTE teachers with occupational licenses, so they also looked into whether they had a traditional or an occupational license. And the occupational one, as we probably, most folks know, that means they can substitute their industry employment for you know some of their regular class time and a traditional license. And they're also able to substitute their industry certification in a trade. So those folks leave at noticeably higher rates than first non-CTE teachers, but also among CTE teachers with a traditional license. So um, among CTE teachers, those with occupational licenses, uh, again, leave more often than those with traditional CTE licenses, roughly a 25% higher rate of exit. Uh, turnover is highest in what they're calling the growth fields of health sciences, IT, and STEM, especially with teachers who have less than 10 years of experience. And exit rates are also higher among the trades. Manufacturing, construction, and transportation uh, those who leave are also the most likely to earn more on the outside. This is not surprising. Um, average post-exit earnings, non-CTE teachers earn about $90,000 on average two years after they leave. Occupationally licensed CTE teachers earn considerably more than traditionally licensed CTE teachers, especially in the high growth areas. So those occupational licensed guys are earning about 110 uh, thousand annually, about 20,000 more than they did teaching. And then this last bit, uh, they found that if you, you know, loss of one health science teacher resulted in a net loss of roughly one section of related coursework. Uh, but then they kind of did some digging and said, well, often schools are choosing not to offer that particular course, or they're hiring a temp or a sub at some, you know, non-licensed person because the class sizes weren't larger afterwards when they were digging into it. And it's basically because OSHA has apparently guidelines about class ratios for CTE courses, so they can't uh, mess with that too much. So that's what I've got. In the end, it was a decent discussion about, you know, what can we do? How can we keep more of these occupationally licensed CTE teachers around?
Yeah, I mean, interesting. Nothing too surprising, right? I guess I am curious how this works. Like if people tend to go back and forth, you know, they work and then they, they teach a while and they work and they teach or they try to do both. I mean, it seems like you'd, you'd want there to be that sort of setup because, uh, you know, if all you're doing is teaching, you might quickly, uh, you know, be out of touch with the reality of the workforce. And Right, David? Yeah, it's sort of a conundrum, right? I mean, the the more time experience you have as a teacher, the less experience you have in whatever that is you're supposed to be teaching. Uh, and and vice versa, right? I mean, I don't want to say I wouldn't want to be, you know, like in a CTE course that uh, could it could keep its teachers, right? But it is, you know, it is you get the sense that the best people are the people who are most likely to leave, right? Because they have the highest opportunity cost. Um, and so then the people who stay are, I, I don't want to denigrate them, right? But they're people with lower opportunity cost in the field, right? Presumably. Um, and so, yeah, I think it's a real challenge. I don't think we, I, I, I don't know that the goal should be to keep people for 25 years, uh, right? Once they become CET teachers, I think the goal should be to get like really good people who have some facility in, in each of these capacities to cycle through. And they got to cycle through, I don't know, fairly often, right? I mean, the, the workplace is not the same now as it was 10 years ago. We didn't even have AI 10 years ago, right? We didn't have it 18 months ago. So I think it's, I don't know, it highlights some inherent challenges of the model. And and I do wonder, you know, some of these models that really try to do hands-on stuff, real apprenticeships, you know, I would imagine there must be people who are, you know, blending these roles that they're on site, on the right, in the workforce, working for the company often, but also doing some teaching and mentorship. And, you know, anyways, I, I mean, I just wonder, I, I'm sure it, this sounds like an amazing study with a lot of great data, but, I, you know, as we move towards more apprenticeships, we hope it might be harder to kind of figure out all of this, right? Because I don't know what to call those people. Yeah, I was going to have to ask the same question. Are these are these full-time CTE teachers? I would kind of hope that they're not, right? I, I I think we're all sort of pushing, you know, when it comes to teacher training, it's the same thing, right? We're pushing for like teachers to be in the classroom and get, you know, taught on the side, right? We we don't we don't want these people to be full-time CE teachers, right? We want them to to do their jobs and then share what they're doing with the kids at some point during the day. I would think. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because somehow we're sort of insinuating that the knowledge that CT teachers bring is is right more um fluid, right? It's more changing. It's we need to keep up to date where we don't think like math or English is as fluid, I guess, in terms of what we're teaching kids so they can stick around longer than the CTE teacher. I don't know. We've never really talked about it that way before, but but it's a uh, it's an, a, a difference worth bringing up. Yeah, no, look, I, I think that's basically right. I mean, uh, now, I think it's always harder once you get to high school and you're trying to think about getting kids, you know, ready for what comes next. It would be good if those high school teachers have some at least uh, insight into, you know, what college is really like right now or what the workforce is really like right now or both. Um, you know, I think it is different when you're talking about a third grade teacher who's, uh, you know, third grade is still the same thing that it was 100 or 200 years ago, or at least in our view, it should be largely the same. High, high school starts to be different. I'm picturing a third grade class from 200 years ago and I'm not sure you want to stick with that statement, but okay. <laughs> okay. Um, the, the better versions of that? I, yeah. 
and without all the terrible racism and segregation. Okay. All right. Well, good. Well, back to CTE. That was really interesting. So I'm I'm glad. Look, we I, I am always impressed by these uh, scholars that can dig up this data uh, and bring it to us. And we just want more and more and more as we see this field evolve. All right. That is all the time we've got for this week. So until next week. I'm David Griffith. And I'm Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, signing off. The Education Gapfly Show is a production of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, located in Washington, D.C. For more information, visit us online at FordhamInstitute.org.